Hello and welcome to Dropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And we're talking about the fifth and final instalment in the Small Axe anthology series mm-hmm. on the BBC. Education, mm. it's called. And I suggested at the end of the previous podcast that I expected this to be based to some degree on Steve McQueen's own childhood experiences in school. And from what I was reading to you from a profile uh, that was done in The Guardian six years ago of him, mm. I think to a great extent it is. And actually the, the, the credits given at the end of this is Story by Steve McQueen. Mm. And in The Guardian article, he talks about his dyslexia. It's the first time it seems he's spoken about his dyslexia mm. publicly. And the child in this, Kingsley, who's 10 or 11 years old, something like that, is clearly dyslexic, although that word's never used, but he has significant trouble reading. Mm. But he's, by all accounts, a bright kid, and you mm. see that. And he's interested in space, you know, he wants to go to the moon and all this. Yes. But he can't read very well. And he is uh, packed off to what is sold as a special needs school by the headmaster of his regular school. Mm. And it turns out is a school for, quote, the educationally subnormal, Mm. which I thought was a phrase I'd invented when I was insulting (laughs) people. (laughs) But it turns out it's actually an official designation. Mm. So these schools are there to, I don't know, like keep kids in a kind of shit prison where they don't do any work, they're not asked to do anything, and they are expected to have the worst kind of lot in life when they leave. And it seems, according to this film that black kids were specifically targeted when they didn't really deserve you know, yes. anything like that kind of treatment. Doesn't, I mean, these schools didn't seem like anyone deserved that kind of treatment, really. Mm. But um, on the basis of culturally biased IQ tests, mm. black kids who were not any worse academically than anyone else were deemed to be mm. treated badly. And that's what happens to Kingsley in this. Yes, I kind of I have mixed feelings about this film actually because mm. it's not as visually or dramatically interesting as some of the others. I found also, you know, I've been talking about kind of you know some of these films about racism that what I don't like about them is a kind of a, a kind of smugness, yeah. You know? mm-hmm. uh, and this film has it, which more like up until this point really has avoided. Yeah, so so I didn't like that either. And on the other hand, I found myself welling up at the end. I, th- I found, found it quite emotional. I thought the kid, Kenya Sandy, who plays Kingsley, mm. I thought was wonderful. Mm. I mean, he really gets the sort of sense. Of it. I, and the mother as well, um, Charlene White, plays I think is great too. And, and, that, and the scene towards the end where um, she kind of takes control of the situation, I suppose, and asks him to read. Mm. They kind of break down like, I, I thought that was a really beautifully played yes. scene. Though the character strikes me as a bit cliched. Which one, the kid or the mother? The mother. Yeah, we've seen this mother before. Mm. You know, very hardworking, very clean, with all this repressed kind of anger, teaching, uh, you know, uh, um, treating the children roughly, mm. you know. Um, yeah. There's, there's a big element of stereotype and cliche in it. And it's not necessarily stereotype of black parents. I mean, I think my mum was a lot like this. Mm. You know, get your work done and sorting shit out in the house and it's like it's it's not an uncommon sort of portrayal of a mother generally no except that I do think that we get offered very little more yeah yeah so you know to have those characteristics is not in itself a problem 
But I think that the mother is basically reduced to those characteristics. We don't get a sense of anything else. I think so. Um, although I did find them kind of well expressed. I think particularly the point where... So this school that Kingsley's been sent to is uh, kind of... It, it's spied on by this woman named Hazel who comes in who's black and she mm. works for this uh, organisation, basically. Seems to be like an informal organisation that um, understands the structural problem with these schools and wants to help black kids who are much smarter than the mm. system thinks and all the rest of it. The school is, is kind of investigated by her and she takes all the names of the kids there and gets in touch with the parents. And then the leader of the organisation, whose name I don't know, um, goes round to Kingsley's house, meets the mum, and gives her all of this documentation, this book by Bernard Code, who... Mm. He's a Grenadian kind of revolutionary, I think. And I think he went back to Grenada from Britain years later and became prime minister. Right. About you know, the kind of structural problems in the educational system. And what I found really authentic about the mother's response is the shutting down about it. She didn't want to hear it. She was told by the headmaster, this is the place to send your kid. It's really good. It's, it'll suit him perfectly. And upon hearing all this stuff being given his documentation she I mean I thought she might just throw it in the bin you know she just hides it behind a picture but she doesn't want to hear about it anymore and it's this sense of you know dipping that toe in the water when she goes to the meeting and starts to think there might be something in what this woman's saying to her and eventually you know she gets to that point where she says we're not going to hide from this anymore I need to know if you can read so I found all that very authentic despite the fact I think there is a lot of cliche in it I thought it was very authentically played I mean I've had some of that before like I, I, I was um when I was a kid, I was in the special needs mm. system a bit. I didn't go to a special school. Um, and mine was kind of the opposite reason for being dumb, I guess. Like I was kind of, I had Asperger's, so I was smart, but I had kind of behavioural problems. Mm. And my mum fought for years and years to get that sort of recognised by uh, the council, basically, mm. the local educational authority, so that I could have someone, I don't know, like a, like a, a helper, basically, mm. in school, someone I could talk to and that kind of thing. She fought for fucking ages and really, really hard. And I remember her crying about it and stuff. So I've kind of seen some of that kind of care and fighting for your kid. Mm. It's really authentically played by the mother in this, I think, mm. and really authentically dramatised. What I, I had a problem with, and I didn't have a significant problem with this, is the leader of this organisation, when they go to the meeting, she's speaking, actually when she meets the mum as well, she's speaking about the structural problems Right, this country is racist, basically. Although mm. I don't think they use the word racism at any point, but that's essentially what they're talking mm. about. This system is set up to give us no shot and give our kids no shot and not help them. And then there's this line she has when she and Hazel and the mother are meeting later on. The mother's talking about writing to Margaret Thatcher, who's just become mm. Secretary of State for Education. So this is about 1970. Mm. This is 1970, and the the leader of the organisation says something like. I wish there were more parents like you. And for a woman who's been talking throughout about structural problems, that strikes me as a really odd line. Like, at that point, it becomes a problem with the parents. And maybe she thinks, maybe she feels that, but is that something she should be saying? (laughs) Well, no, I mean, I can understand that as well. I mean, so, you know, just, just because the problem is structural, or actually maybe particularly because the problem is structural, then it has to be fought collectively. So, you know, when parents don't want to put themselves out, mm. yeah, because it is always a pain in the ass to do so, right? It means, you know, yeah. giving up Saturdays or time or, you know, 
but then if people don't join up, nothing can be done. So I wish there yeah, were more parents yeah. like you. I mean, I think it's a film that will resonate. I mean, you know, when I was watching it, I kept thinking of myself, you know, as an immigrant kid in Canada. And, you know, I mean, my sister, for example, you know, she had to fight just to uh, go the academic route because it was always assumed you know, that immigrant girls weren't deserving of an education, that they would just get married very young anyway, and what was the point of wasting an education on them, right? So even somebody with, like, you know, some of the highest grades in the high school was actually kind of relegated to a trade, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I think people will find a resonance of how the educational system is skewed against them, either through class or migration or race or you know there will be a whole bunch of issues and will people in which uh, a whole bunch of avenues through which people will be able to relate uh, to the problems expressed in this film that said i kind of i also i suppose i'm trying to figure out why i didn't like it as much as the others i think the ending was disappointing oh no i like the ending well the ending was moving you know and the mother the tear in the mother's eye when he's reading and he's doing well, and they found this, you know, this Saturday school that the community set up. Yes, I like the ending, and I like the going into space, which has been a theme throughout the film. Yeah, yeah. it starts off with that. And I like the choice of music at the end. Mm. I mean, I think maybe for me, and this is in a way I wanted to ask you about this, because a lot of the particularities of the British educational system are just foreign to me. Mm. And so maybe I think I missed out something on that. You know, you were speaking about the kids in band playing that song. and London's Burning. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also these interludes of watching television programs that I know are kind of generationally... Rhubarb and Custard. That's right. Very popular kid show from the era. I know the show and I know the theme tune especially. I never actually watched it. Well, I sensed it was important, but I didn't know what the hell it was. Um, (laughs) Everyone watched it, yeah. Yeah. So, So I think maybe because I couldn't connect to things like that, the film didn't operate on me as powerfully as some of the others. I think there's a really big nostalgic element to that. And Mm. I think the way it looks is completely that. Because we were talking in the last podcast about the black bars Mm. on the top and bottom of the screen. This is, you know, it's been shot in a a wider Mm. aspect ratio than TV. Well, this has been shot in a narrower one. Mm. Um, Not very much narrower. It's not full frame. But there are black bars on the left and right hand side of your Mm -hmm. screen. And either it's been shot on the right kind of film stock or it's been very well digitally manipulated to look like it's been mm. shot on that film stock because it, it absolutely evokes the look of TV shows like Play for Today. Oh. Um, I mean, like it, 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 and actually, although I never, again, that was before my time, Play for Today, but I know the look, you know, I know the look of that. When you've seen repeats of British TV from that era, it looks just like this mm. stuff. And also um, things like um, science programs that you'd watch at school that were like made for schools of people in these kind of stark white backgrounds doing experiments again just the the look the feel of the film stock which is either used or emulated here Mm. is exactly the same and i think that's a really huge kind of cultural when i've watched old tv from other countries particularly america it doesn't look like that you Mm. know they have a different look to the way Mm. their shows looked in the 70s there's something very very specific about that and it's very well emulated here i mean it's not unlike you know, uh, Mank, we were talking about recently, emulates that look, although not completely, you know, it's not shot in full frame again, That's they, they use the widescreen in that. And to the, if you go to the extreme, it's something like Grindhouse, mm. where it's all about, you know, living in that look, and that's not quite what's going on here. Mm. But it has that feel to it, you know, that's part of actually, I think, just the joy of watching it mm. as well. 
Uh, I think it's a nostalgic pleasure, but maybe something that goes along with a nostalgic pleasure is there's something to, I don't know, maybe there's something to be suspicious of in indulging in nostalgia. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think the film had little moments that erupted into something else. You know, so for example, the um, violence with which the father reacted to being woken up, right? That suggested a realm of something. Um, the parents' reaction to the daughter talking about going to fashion school, being interested in fashion, right? That kind of brought up a whole kind of structure of feeling about, you know, the parents being insecure for their children's future and wanting her to do nursing or something, right? It's, none of it's spoken, but you get the feel mm. of that kind of thing. There's uh, some beautiful images of uh, the boy hiding under the water in the bathtub or, you know, with the face mirrored on the, uh, um, on the bus, you know, to the new school. So, you know, kind of, it's full of little things like that that make it special, that there's not just a run-of-the-mill, you know, mm. problem film about uh, how uh, racist structures affect black children's educational opportunities. But there's not enough of those for me. Mm. I think the thing with the dad is pretty well spoken. I mean, pretty clearly spoken. Yeah, I don't think it's his reaction to being woken up as much as it's a reaction to he doesn't want to hear this. He's talking all the time about kids got to get a trade yeah, like yeah. I do. Mm. And clearly he doesn't know how to read because later when he wants to read the pamphlet about the uh, the Burner Code book, he gets his daughter to read it to him. Yes. And I mean, I think that's a really good scene as well because he... She knows he's going to react badly to it because the book is, in some respect, talking about him, hmm. or at least talking about. Well, it's, talk, it's not talking about him as someone who, maybe, the educational system failed because hmm. he, he wasn't educated in the UK. But um, it talks about someone who, you know, the kids who go to these schools will end up doing a trade, and they won't have any higher aspiration than that. And that, you know, to him, could, he could take that in a very insulting. Do they take... specify a repetitive, easy trade? Repetitive, menial, that doesn't require intelligence. Yeah, but yeah. he's a carpenter, so actually, it doesn't. I don't think it applies to him. I think he could take it as that. Though. I think that. I mean, to me, that's what I read into the daughter, sort of going, "Just wait, let me finish," and then that scene finishes with him saying, "Read the rest of it." Mm. So just within this scene, he is kind of well. I suppose he started off saying, "I want it read to me," so he's he's coming round to the idea that you know mm. there is something wrong with the school and that maybe what he wants for his son isn't the be-all and end-all. Mm-hmm. And then the scene ends with him um, expressing some humility, mm-hmm. really. So kind of sucking it up and saying, you know, what is best for me or what I felt was best for me is not necessarily what's best for my son yes. and I need to do what's best for him. Yes. I really like that about that scene. Yes. Um, I don't know. I suppose I kind of, I want something more because, you know, kind of scenes like that in a way also resonate with me, right? I mean... You know, you always have, like, immigrant parents kind of, you know, making kinds of excuses because, you know, basically they say, well, you know, I never went to school and I did it all right. You know, and they feel they've done all right because they have a janitor's job in a factory (laughs) and they're not starving in a hut, right? (laughs) You know, so their level of expectation about what doing all right is is so low, right? They're in a way... You see, the film would have been more interesting if that would also have been seen as a factor in limiting a child's opportunities, Mm. you know. Yeah. That it comes from the inside as well. Yeah. Yeah. The mother, I feel, is a bit of a cliche. But on the other hand, I really liked it because the film makes you wait for her moment of revelation. 
she's so shut off you know so hard working so concerned with getting the next thing done mm. yeah that she almost fails her son yeah she's so yeah yeah um you know go through the right path and do this now or you know and i like that the film made us wait for it yeah mm. because you can see how has she waited too long yeah then yeah. uh it would have been might have been too late well and yeah in some ways that's part of the drama it was too late for her appeal right um, she did let it go on a bit longer. She caught it just in time. Um, but, yeah, I, I suppose I wanted more moments of rupture, you know, things that connote something else that isn't so neat. Talk to me about the smugness then. Why does it feel smug to you and what about it could be made less smug? Okay, so the first black person I saw was Sidney Poitier. <laughs> I remember being at my grandmother's and Liz of the Field was playing on television. And I thought, you know, what a fantastic introduction to questions of race, right? Because Sidney Poitier was so handsome and he was so amiable in that film and he was so put upon by those nuns and he was also so generous in dealing with them, right? Like, you know, and I kind of, I grew up reading Baldwin and Alice Walker and Toni Morrison and all that stuff, right? And all of them have this kind of... um righteous integrity that is kind of the only way or that you know they evoke as the only way to actually kind of put up with all the racism that the culture throws at you right so in that sense i understand it right but there's a difference between kind of showing this as a kind of a coping mechanism mm. yeah uh dealing you know in a racist world or when you get in some kind of drama whether it's about race or not right but which often comes, it has a, 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 there's a dimension which to me it is associated with black culture. So for example, even with that one Ava DuVernay, that stupid film that she did with Reese Witherspoon and Oprah. Mm. And, yeah, that was a film and which was so smug, yeah. right? It was like, uh, I have the answers to the world, you know? And if you follow me, you will get them too. I was thinking, what kind of artist feels that they have the answer to anything? <laughs> like, you know, mm. yeah. Uh, so, so that kind of feeling that just, just because you've lived oppression or terrible things or whatever, that you somehow have an answer to something, mm. is to me problematic, right? Yeah. And how does that show up here? Well, so for example, through the way that the film dramatizes the whole thing. I mean, there's a problem and we find an answer to it. And the conduit to that answer is that church lady, or well, she's not a church lady, that lady who used to be in politics, who mm. is now, yeah, that kind of... Um, Someone who comes in with the answers. With the answers, yes. Yeah. And in fact, I mean, in this case, it turns out to be the right answer. You well, know. is that what makes it smoother? Like, the, she comes with the answers and the answer works. And it's yeah. that simple. And it's that simple, exactly. Yeah. So... I mean, this is by far, you know, a much uh, a lower offender than some of the American stuff that one sees, which I, yeah, I feel like, uh, um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, even, so for example, the film that you like, If Beale Street Could Talk, right? Mm. You know, the film that you like so much, you read Baldwin, and Baldwin is full of humor and anguish and questions, you look at that film and it's almost like you know the answer before the film is over. You know, like, hmm. you know, there are, there, are, there are things that are taken for granted as truth, which are not, right? They're just maybe an ex somebody's experience or hmm. a way of looking at the world. It's not the way of 
you know, looking at the world. It's not everybody's experience. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, mm, I don't know if I'm being clear. I but, think that's fairly clear. I uh, think people can probably take issue with it. I think I might take issue with it about if Bill Street could talk, which I felt was more open than that yeah, well, to interpretation or what have you. But I certainly know what you mean about whatever that film was called, the Edward Vernon one, which I didn't like very much either. We did. I mean, that was the first time I think on the podcast you brought up the idea of smugness. Yeah, and it's so true of that film. Yes, and I think that it's, it's you're probably right about it being true here. I think, and I think it's probably the weakest of the five yeah. small axe films. I think so too. I mean, I suppose you know, and I'm just thinking aloud here, but I also think that in the U.S., for example, there's a whole tradition of church and preaching, yeah, mm. and, you know, and kind of showing people the path. So, you know, I'm sure that kind of that aspect in kind of black American culture has different roots and different byways and so on that I, you know, that I don't know. So maybe I'm just getting, you know, what I see as a particular result of it. And it's certainly kind of less strong here. But I do feel that of all the films that we saw, it's the one that is most pat. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, because I thought I was talking about things that I really liked about it and there are lots of things that I like about it but I think what I like about it is stuff that speaks you know, jibes with my personal experiences and past that I think are authentically portrayed here and that I kind of recognise mm. and actually the reason that I like it the least of all of these films is that it's the least challenging yeah. Um, yeah, so the, the ones I like the best which are Lovers Rock Mangrove and Alex Wheatle, I think, mm. are the most challenging to me. They present the most new ideas or newest ways of looking at things, things I hadn't considered, that sort of thing. This, I don't think, puts anything on the table that I haven't experienced before or seen before or seen portrayed before, mm. um, or that has a new way of looking at any of that. I look for moments of rupture or of bliss or of... So I was thinking, for example, the last scene, right, with the father would have been so much more powerful to me if the father had been angry or jealous. Yeah. <laughs> now here is his son who's going to have all these opportunities that have been denied him. Or maybe, you know, now his, his children, you know, are going to be able to do so well, they're going to leave them behind and it'll be a loss rather than a gain. Mm. Yeah. All those problems that often kind of, you know, working class families or immigrant families face, yeah, the kind of, you know, the, the child's opportunities is often a loss to the family, yeah, in so many ways. I mean, allowing a child to go to school means that there's a loss of income often to the family. Yeah, the, like, mm. these are kind of issues that are, in fact, much more complicated, yeah, than were shown in the film, yeah, mm. and that I think the film could have just hinted at through a glance or a look or something that would have thrown a spanner in you know, the neatness of the direction of the scene, which is how wonderful mm. the child can read. Yeah, it did occur to me that the family has no issue with money, um, which is not to say that they should have, especially, but I just thought that might come up at some point, how are we going to pay for this, that, or the other. Well, the mother like raises it, I'm paying for this house and I'm buying your shoes. And Yeah, yeah, but, she, but it's not in, in, in a sense of, I have to worry about money, it's in a sense of, you live here, you're under my roof. Well, but it's also, I have to worry about money. Uh, I, I, yes, I got That's that. not how I took it. Yeah, But no, I guess I also, I suppose... Um, you know, education was paid for by the state and all that sort of stuff. So it's, yeah. not, it's not really an issue. Mm. But um felt like a missing dimension to me, just the just the, the sense of the family's economic situation. Although, even though their economic situation is, you know, perfectly harmonious, I don't seem to have any trouble. 
Making money. Well, you know, yeah. so it's a working class family. Yeah. Um, yeah. It just felt like a dimension missing. I think that's kind of well, the ultimate okay. issue I think I have is that it's, as you were saying, the mother is reduced to one thing. Mm. Pretty much everything in this, I think, boils down to one or two ideas, which is not something I expect of yeah. Steve McQueen. No, I'm kind of, if we're now talking about the series as a whole, mm. I must say I'm a bit disappointed in this being the ending film. Mm. You know, I think I would have liked this more had, had the, actually this been the opening film <laughs> and maybe have as an ending film the one with John Boyega becoming the policeman or something. You know, the ordering of these films doesn't quite feel right to me. I can sort of see why they've ended on a happy ending. You know, even if it is past and the rest of it, it's Christmas. Yeah. So I give people the you know a, a happy send off. So because mm. it's an ending that's is that thing that we've said before. I think about uh, uh, um, what's his name? He did Ocean's Eleven. Soderbergh. Uh. Steven Soderbergh has this thing about yeah, you know, whatever film it is that you want to pitch in Hollywood. When you're pitching it at the worst, nastiest bit where it's a rape scene or a murder or whatever it is, the worst bit of the film, stop yourself in the middle of the sentence and say. Do you know what? Ultimately, this is a film about hope. <laughs> and he, he says, you get your film sold. It's got a lot of heart. <laughs> this, and, and so I think they finished the whole series here on a note of hope. No, I get that, actually. And in some ways, I don't begrudge it. But I am also thinking, I mean, you know, for me, the first film was so good. Such a high note to start with. And then the second one was a kind of masterpiece. And then the third one was so good. And you think, oh, my God, have they maintained this level? Because, you know, you can't turn out masterpiece after masterpiece. But then, actually, I felt mm, the fourth was kind of a, a step down for me. Mm. You know, and then, actually, this one is a step even further down. So, you know, I responded emotionally. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, kind of artistically, this is not a high point. And there's something about there being a diminishment through the last three films that even though the, the story itself ends on a high note, the series, to me, ends on a low one. Yeah, I agree with that. They should do the, um, the Pulp Fiction thing of putting the worst bit in the middle so everyone forgets. Yes. So everyone remembers the opening of Pulp Fiction and the ending of Pulp Fiction and all that shit with Bruce Willis in the middle, you forget. <laughs> and, and, that's why, and that's why it's non-chronological. Because if it was chronological, you have to open with that. Mm. Was it open or end that? Either way, it will be at one of the ends mm. and, and you wouldn't be happy with it. Yeah. You can just put that crap in the middle... Forget it. Forget it exists. Mm. Anyway, I feel we're probably kind of crapping on McQueen's <laughs> own experience because, you know, I suppose to him it means something quite differently that it ends on kind of his story, but also on his overcoming, which actually might support my point. Yeah, because, you know, why is it so good that the note ends on this overcoming? It might be good to have ended on the not overcoming, right? On everybody else who wasn't able to overcome. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, just a thought. <laughs> I know, but it's Christmas. So, <laughs> so cut on some slack. <laughs> well, uh, all right. Um, so, nonetheless, I mean, this is still a very, very high level. So, um, highly recommend that you watch this and that indeed you watch all of them. Do you want to add anything to end with? I really enjoyed following this series, I thought it was really, really re rewarding to do so I learned a lot learned a lot about <laughs> about British about black life. history that I didn't you know <laughs> just the existence of the Mangrove Nine I had no idea and it seems so important to know 
Yes, actually, you know? all of that is true of me as well, and a reason on its own to watch the film. So, and an education for you in, I guess, parts of British culture that you had no kind of like you're saying you didn't know about the beat test, you didn't know about rhubarb and custard. Well, now you do. Right. Well, there you go. I'll forget <laughs> as soon as the podcast's over. But thank you very much. <laughs> All right, we are eavesdropping at the movies, and we are on Apple Podcasts. Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye.